You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. We've been hearing a lot about UFOs lately. I mean, even more than we usually do at Big Picture Science. After all, we've devoted many episodes to this phenomenon over the years, even as the nomenclature shifted. Spaceships, flying saucers, UFOs. I even remember the era in which these things were called flying disks. (laughs) I won't ask you what era that was. We took a road trip to Roswell, New Mexico, the uh, motherland of mothership mythology, you could say, for an episode about the crash. And when two letters in UFO were replaced to create UAP, and then the A in aerial repurposed for A in anomalous phenomena, well, we covered that too. Here's a sampling of some of those episodes. Does a secret government program looking into UFOs mean there also exists secret government proof of them? It's Skeptic Check, new UFO evidence. This is Skeptic Check, Pentagon UFO report on Big Picture Science. It's Saucer's Apprentice on Big Picture Science. This episode of our regular look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, NASA UFO study. And now UAPs have landed on Capitol Hill in the form of a congressional hearing. Public fascination with alien craft is understandable. After all, if something we can't identify is cruising our skies... Without filing a flight plan, I might add. (laughs) Well, that's concerning and beyond intriguing. We watched that congressional hearing with interest, but it wasn't the only recent high-profile discussion of a possible UFO conspiracy that caught our attention. So in this episode, we're doing something a little different and are including reference to another podcast, prominent one, that addressed claims about secret government UFO programs. Both the podcast and the hearings included extraordinary claims and examples of logical fallacies that might end up, in the end, promoting misinformation about the topic. But this isn't an episode just about the latest UFO claims. We've covered that elsewhere, as you've heard but about the questions we should be asking when we examine those claims. For example, what standards of evidence do extraordinary claims require before they deserve to be reported? What would convince you that the government is aware of alien visitation? Is the word of an authority figure sufficient evidence? Also, does omitting context strengthen a conspiratorial mindset? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. We're eager to tackle these questions because we're up against a fire hose of conspiracy theories these days of all kinds. Get ready to raise an eyebrow on this episode of our regular look at critical thinking. It's Skeptic Check UFO Conspiracy. podcast that we'll be talking about in this episode has a great title that sums up what we have all been wondering. 
what the heck is going on with these UFO stories? It was a June 2023 episode of The Ezra Klein Show, produced by The New York Times. And it was a compelling episode. Mr. Klein devoted an hour to a conversation with Leslie Kane, an investigative reporter who co-authored a couple of articles for The New York Times, including, crucially, the 2017 story that revealed a secret, now defunct, government program to investigate UFO sightings, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, or AATIP. Leslie Kane is a central character in shaping the current public conversation about UFOs. For people dedicated to the belief in UFOs, her article was a dream come true, and it revived public discussions about the topic. Her more recent profile of whistleblower David Grush appeared in the online publication The Debrief. Miss Kane has been writing about UFOs for around two decades. She is the author of the 2010 book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, and we interviewed her about it when it came out. Mr. Klein's interview with her was thoughtful, respectful, and of course, the whole subject of secret UFO government programs is fascinating. But her claim that multiple people have come forward saying that the government has evidence of alien visitation raised our eyebrows. And since she published her story in the debrief and spoke with Ezra Klein, her principal source, the former intelligence officer David Grush, appeared in the congressional hearing. Mr. Grush said that the federal government routinely retrieves physical evidence from alien crash sites and has collected non-human remains. Uh, I was informed in the course of my official duties of a multi-decade UAP crash retrieval and reverse engineering program. We have something to contribute to this discussion because, well, I'm a SETI astronomer and I hear from people about the UFO issue many times a week. Now, all of this may make us sound biased against the evidence that aliens are here. Frankly, I would love it if aliens were here. And I've been publicly advocating for the idea that aliens exist somewhere in the cosmos for a long time. In fact, I've wagered so many cups of coffee that we'll discover alien life in the next decade, I may have to take up coffee bean growing to make good on my promises. Conclusive evidence of aliens would be a truly major scientific discovery and, heck, job security for me and every scientist searching for intelligent life in the cosmos. So let's begin with Leslie Kane's recent conversation with Ezra Klein. Leslie Kane, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's go back to the first piece that you co-authored in The Times back in 2017. Give me a bit of... There are a couple of logical missteps that jumped out at us in the story that Leslie Kane presented to Ezra Klein. They're familiar to me from years of addressing the subject of UFOs and were repeated in the congressional hearing, but they're often overlooked because the overall alien narrative is so compelling. We break it down into two categories, the use of logical fallacies and the role of context and why context is important in assessing the truth about a claim. And we'll begin with the person who Leslie Kane cites as her primary source in her early reporting about the government's now-defunct program, AATIP. She says that a former counterintelligence officer named Luis Elizondo approached her with information about the secret Pentagon program that he once led and that the program had uncovered a lot of evidence of alien visitation. She introduces him to Ezra Klein this way. It was led by this man named Luis Elizondo, a former counterintelligence operative and a a, a very highly cleared person who worked with a lot of, I mean, he did a lot of other jobs while he was at the Pentagon. His credentials sound impressive and undoubtedly are, and it seems as if this man with a lot of security clearance is running a secret program within the Pentagon. 
What we think the public should know, and Miss Kane doesn't volunteer this, nor is she asked about it in the interview, is how this modern UFO program began. Yes, it was initiated by Senator Harry Reid, which is mentioned in the interview. But what is not said is that the $22 million government contract was not awarded to someone in the military, nor to a scientist or an aviation expert. It was given to a businessman in Reed's district who had a long public interest in UFOs. This is a man named Robert Bigelow, the CEO of Bigelow Airspace. And this was after Mr. Bigelow lobbied for the creation of the program because he and Senator Reed shared an interest in UFOs. This isn't a new detail. We talked about it with Benjamin Radford, a research fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry, soon after Ms. Kane's 2017 article appeared. You could almost look at it as sort of a pork project. <laughs> you know, in this particular case, we know that the program was introduced and sponsored by Harry Reid, who wanted to basically give his buddy, a man named Robert Bigelow, who's been a longtime fan of UFOs and interested in that, a contract to do the research. Mr. Bigelow, a believer in alien visitation, is quoted by many news outlets saying that the aliens are already here among us. Prior to winning this government contract, he had been funding his own investigations into the UFO phenomenon. One of the people Bigelow hired was Luis Elizondo, but it was still Bigelow's baby, and that's different than suggesting that Elizondo ran the program from deep within the Pentagon. Ezra Klein does a great job zeroing in on the limited funding of the project, one that seemed like a backwater, as he puts it, because $22 million spent on the program is kind of a drop in the bucket for the Pentagon. And as he says, it seems like it was very hard for people to get the Pentagon actually interested in this. Look, $22 million, that's a minuscule three thousandths of 1% of the Pentagon's annual budget which at the time of this program was around $664 billion, billion with a B. Indeed, if this were truly the discovery of this century, wouldn't it have received more funding? And why would the funding be stopped? As far as we know, the program ended in 2012, and it ended not because they had actually finally found <laughs> evidence of, of extraterrestrial craft or recovered bodies, but because really... It was not productive. There was nothing there. The program, over its $22 million cost in its years in development, didn't really yield any useful information about what may be flying over our skies. And so it was discontinued. And here's the thing. Without the context of how the program started and only hearing that a former counterintelligence operative ran a secret UFO program from within the Pentagon, you might think, wow, he sounds credentialed and the program must be serious and credible. And this reliance on credentialed status and presenting it as a kind of evidence in itself is a classic logical fallacy called argument from authority. Leslie Kane relies on it a lot, and it was also employed in the congressional hearing. Here's how David Grush introduced himself in the July 2023 televised hearings on Capitol Hill. My name is David Charles Grush. I was an intelligence officer for 14 years, in the, both in the U.S. Air Force, uh, both active duty Air National Guard and Reserve, at the rank of major, and most recently from 2021 to 2025, or excuse me, 2023, uh, at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, NGA, uh, at the GS-15 civilian level, which is uh, the military equivalent of a full bird colonel. Leslie Kane bases much of her most recent story in the debrief on the claims of Mr. Grush, which she outlines here. There are craft 
in the possession of these programs, these government programs, and have been for decades, that have been shown to be of non-human origin, definitively. He's also testified under oath that the government has been working for years to collect and study crashed UAPs, something he told Representative Tim Burchett. Has the U.S. government become aware of actual evidence of extraterrestrial, otherwise unexplained forms of intelligence? And if so, when do you think this first occurred? Uh, I like to use the term non-human. I don't like to denote origin. Keeps the aperture open, both scientifically. Right. Uh, uh, certainly, uh, like I've dis- discussed publicly uh, previously, 1930s. Even at this public hearing, he declined to provide evidence of his claims, yet we're asked to trust him because of his credentials and authority. Other key witnesses in all of this are Navy fighter pilots. After Bigelow's government contract ran out in 2017, a new government program emerged in 2020 called the UAP Task Force. And some of the most tantalizing evidence to emerge from this program were videos the government released of UAPs taken by Navy pilots. Seth, have you seen some of these videos? Yes, I've seen these videos, Molly. Uh, they were they were very, very popular at the time. And, you know, you see objects that look like, well, peanuts, really, or Tic Tacs, if that's your preferred uh, analogy there, but they're you know they're twisting and they zoom out of the frame and stuff like that. You know they're they're pretty energetic. Retired Navy pilot David Frever said in the hearing that the flying objects in the videos were maneuvering in ways that no known aircraft was able to do. We have nothing that can stop in midair and go the other direction, nor do we have anything that can, like in our situation, come down from space, hang out for three hours, and go back up. But if you are relying on appeals to authority, you might not consider that even highly trained pilots make mistakes. James McGahey, an astronomer and ex-Air Force pilot, described how this happens. And this really stayed with me. Pilots have been touted by the UFO community for 70 years as trained observers. They are not. They never have been. I never once received a single training module in my whole Air Force career on how to identify unidentified flying objects, not once. They're not trained observers. And in fact, they're prone to pious pilot bias, that some people call it, that they're never wrong. Pilots have big egos. It goes with the territory. They can't be wrong. And they're always looking outside looking for other things that not that they don't want to run into. So they automatically assume if they see a light that it's something that is dangerous to them. This is, of course, not true when they see Venus. I have seen pilots personally see Venus and take maneuvers to avoid hitting it. I would imagine that it would be hard for a highly trained Navy pilot or any pilot to admit error or that they weren't fully acquainted with the sensors on the planes. But the other thing about arguments from authority is that you may feel that the word of an authority figure like David Grush is evidence enough. But if what is being suggested is that we have collected, presumably, an alien interstellar rocket ship capable of bridging trillions of miles of space, well, we should want to see evidence. Seth, why do you say trillions of miles of space? Well, I mean, you know, just going to the next star over from ours is <laughs> four and a half light years, and that's trillions of miles. H- I mean, how long How long would that take one of our rockets to... Uh, to the nearest other star, it's 75,000 years. Seth, you know, I was struck by how this description of Grush could apply to many people that you and I know. 
What gives me confidence is knowing him and knowing the reputation that he has and having talked to other people who know him and have worked with him and have vouched for him. I don't have any reason to believe that he himself would be making anything up. Exactly. And I mean, she makes an appeal to his good character, which sounds so reasonable. We all do it when we talk about the reliability of our friends, our spouses, our cousins. Journalistically here, it's problematic. As an investigative reporter, Leslie Kane knows she needs to consider possible motivations that could lead someone to make an erroneous claim or mislead, purposely or simply be mistaken. And I wanted her to propose a few reasons why David Grush might be wrong. And at this point, I felt she was given too much latitude in this interview to base her claims repeatedly on appeals to authority. After years of hearing these assertions, she should have something tangible to back it up. After all, variations of the story that there's a government cover-up about UFOs has been going on for almost 80 years. Yeah, that's a lot of time for someone, anyone, to come forth and provide some evidence to scientists or to the public. And instead, we must rely on Miss Kane to use her authority and her instincts to make judgments for us about a whole group of people. We're asked to place our trust in a single human being's judgment of many other human beings. For me personally, it's kind of an accumulation of conversations I've had with very highly respected people, people that I respect and trust that have given me this kind of information for a long time. And it's my faith in in Grush and who he is. And I've spent hours talking to him. He's provided me with documentation and performance reviews of, of his work. He's highly regarded. She is passionate, and the story that she's telling is compelling. But when you listen closely to the interview, she swings between belief and objectivity. Look, there have always been extraordinary claims, but how we figure out the truth about them matters. And that is why the role of journalists is key here, because we're supposed to be the gatekeepers of what kinds of claims get aired in public. And just because someone with an important title is making a claim, I mean, that may be news, but that doesn't mean that the claim needs to be broadcast as truth. People make erroneous claims all the time. Some might be lies. Some could just be mistakes. Being skeptical about them doesn't mean dismissing every extraordinary claim. It means demanding evidence before you accept the claims as true. And because of social media today, there are more avenues for misinformation and conspiracy theories to be amplified without evidence. But let me just weigh in here with a big picture, because in my opinion, it wouldn't matter whether people believed in conspiracies if the subject of the conspiracy were trivial or clearly false. But conspiratorial thinking is often linked to mistrust of science itself or science journalism, and that can do harm. It matters a lot when people claim that Earth is being visited by extraterrestrials because that would have game-changing implications and consequences for science and for humanity. So we want to take seriously any credible claims of ETs among us. We agree with Mr. Klein that something interesting is happening here and also that it's important to not trivialize or ignore UFO claims. It does mean being skeptical of them. But Nadia Drake, a member of the NASA group studying UAPs, says this can create blowback. I have gotten a lot of reactions from people. I would say the loudest are the ones who are the most deeply unhappy with me. And I think for this community, skepticism is, it's a bad word. It's a bias. And what I said during the NASA public meeting is that in science, skepticism is not a bias or a bad word. It's how you get things done. It's how you know what you know. 
It's how you have confidence in your interpretation of something. Seth, how, how do people react when you voice your skepticism that the aliens are here? Well, they either agree with me or violently disagree with me. What are the violent disagreements like? Well, they think that I'm just, you know, uh, covering my head in the sand and ignoring all this good evidence that we're being visited. But they would have said that, you know, 10 years ago, too. What about the claim that you're part of the cover-up? I sometimes get that. They're usually too polite to <laughs> suggest that I'm part of the cover-up. And if they do suggest that, I usually respond by saying, look, if I'm part of this cover-up, I think the federal government owes me a lot of back pay. Coming up, the role of the E-word in UFO claims and why tangible evidence seems to be sorely lacking. This episode of our look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check UFO Conspiracy. Well, we're talking about how UFO claims have been publicly evaluated recently. And there were a couple of moments in the Ezra Klein interview that were particularly strong. He asks what can be verified firsthand in Leslie Kane's story, because it seems as though no evidence has been evaluated firsthand, not by Grush and not by Kane herself. He asks, in this era of whistleblowers leaking documents, why not one document has been leaked to the press? I mean, if the government had evidence of aliens, wouldn't there be at least memos being passed around in government offices? So you think there would be a lot of written record of this? Oh, yeah. Yeah, this would be written down. It would be written down by many, many people. I, I don't think you could keep this secret any more than you could keep the you know, development of fusion energy secret. You can't do it. It's too big a story. So you think a document would have been leaked by now? Oh, yeah. And people would be talking, too, because there are too many people that would be involved. There's also the enormous temptation for anybody who knew about this to leak it because they would be remembered in history forever as the one who, you know, made the world aware of the fact that, you know, the aliens are here. And so Ezra Klein is right with us when he asks, why won't anyone provide a single document to the press about evidence of UFOs? One thing that's always interesting to me about the stories here is they're very, as I hear them told, they're very human to human, right? Somebody told me, instead of us getting, or I think much more to the point, instead of you getting an anonymous zip file that has a bunch of documents, a bunch of photographs, whatever it might be. And I don't know if, you know, if you know if Grush has supporting documentation that he was able to turn over but can't show you or did show you and you can't, you know, it's not been reported. But what about documentation, which in many ways is easier to leak than people having to come forward themselves? Leslie Kane replies that in her understanding, Grush did provide documentation to Congress, but it's classified. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about stuff being classified. I mean... What's wrong with the argument that this stuff is classified and that's why we don't know about it? Well, it's, it's, it's just too easy to say it's classified. Why would it be classified? I mean, there's that. Also, Molly, I've always found it amusing that people think that this information has to be withheld because the public couldn't handle the truth. But, you know, almost half the American public already thinks the aliens are here. So they're handling that just fine. Do you have direct knowledge? We've spoken to people with direct knowledge that this imagery applies to crash sites. I 
can't discuss that in an open session. Okay. Uh, do you have any information that the U.S. government is involved in a disinformation campaign to deny the existence of certain UAPs? I can't go beyond what I've already stated publicly. So there has been activity by non-human technology and or beings that has caused harm to humans. Uh, I can't get into the specifics. Well, this is an argument that I have long viewed with skepticism. Society should not and generally does not accept scientific discoveries without good evidence. I mean, you're not going to get published without good evidence. It seems that no one can provide the public with direct evidence of whatever is happening. A lot of the people who we talked to, of course, could not go on the record and they could not provide anything specific. They could not provide proof or data on these crashes. No one can provide proof, but we need proof because what's being alleged here is not just that aliens have visited Earth, but very serious accusations against world governments supposedly in collusion to cover up this evidence. Mick West devotes himself to investigating UFO claims, including those of David Grush. He's actually made some fairly specific claims. He's claimed that uh, the United States recovered a UFO from Italy in 1944 and brought it back to the, the States and has been reverse engineering it. He claimed that uh, there was one UFO that was the size of a football field that they were studying. And he's claimed that there were UFOs that crashed or landed with alien bodies inside them. You know, these are very uh, outlandish and very specific claims. And I think uh, he needs to be asked for more details on this and how he knows that these things are true. So the idea here is that the truth is so big, it needs to remain classified. So there have been suggestions of this made publicly, but it's a very hard thing for anybody to go on the record about because it's such a protected area. You can't talk about it. Here's something else in the Kane interview that I found especially curious. She never says the word aliens, except when she's explaining why the Pentagon swapped UAP initials to get away from the alien stigma. But she does drop suggestive words like breadcrumbs. She describes objects coming from outer space. She alleges that there were medical effects of close encounters. And at one point, the term otherworldly gets slipped in too. I mean, we're talking about aliens here, right, Seth? Well, she might be referring to spotted giraffes, but I kind of doubt it. I don't know if there are many otherworldly giraffes. This bothered me journalistically, because how can you avoid naming the thing that you are implying is happening? But it looks like there is a term for that. Yeah, it's called an implicit argument. An implicit argument is an argument that you're not, well, explicitly making, right? I mean, you're, you're describing something and you allow the listener to draw the conclusions that you really want them to conclude. And what you're saying is that you make the argument without making direct reference to what you're talking about. And this is actually quite useful if you want to get people to draw conclusions that they might not otherwise consider, but it can also be used to manipulate. So you appeal to their, you know, biases, which you can usually sense. You appeal to their emotions, which you can also judge very frequently. So, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to make an argument without explicitly making an argument. Right. So when we heard terms like close encounters, we all know what that means. We saw the film. It's referring to close encounters with aliens. So it is just so curious to me that the word aliens does not come up in this interview. It's like Leslie Kane was speaking 
encode. There were many examples in the interview. Here's another. Um, And when you have the combination of multiple witnesses seeing it with their eyes and multiple sensors also picking it up, you've got a pretty strong case. And that phrase, you've got a pretty strong case, really jumped out at all of us. A strong case of what? (laughs) It felt like she was skating right up to saying a strong case for extraterrestrial visitation, but doesn't say it. Yeah, the casual way that that explosive claim was made happened during the hearing, too. You've stated that the government is in possession of potentially non-human spacecraft. Do we have the bodies of the pilots who piloted this craft? As I've stated publicly already in my News Nation interview, uh, biologics came with some of these recoveries, yeah. Were they, I guess, human or non-human biologics? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people uh, with direct knowledge on the program I talked to that are currently still on the program. I don't know about you, Seth, but I really laughed at that when I heard non-human biology, right? That could be anything. That could be a dog. It could be a cat. I mean, all life <laughs> on Earth that's not human is non-human biology. So so in this case, David Grush could be absolutely telling the truth, but not referring to extraterrestrials. Yeah. So we want to be skeptical about all these claims. There are very legitimate reasons to study unidentified objects in our airspace from a military and a defense perspective. Something is spooking some pilots, but concluding that things we see or find are from another civilization light years away is a big logical leap. So is the idea that a society able to come all the way to Earth has technology that we could reverse engineer. It's like asking a Neanderthal to reverse engineer a laptop. Just isn't going to happen. Well, those sorts of logical jumps in argument also perplex science journalist Nadia Drake a member of the NASA UAP panel. I think what's what's the most interesting to me is that I'm sure you've had these conversations too with people who want to and are very interested in telling you about their experience with something in the sky that was behaving in ways that they couldn't explain. I'm sure you've gotten a lot more of that than I have. And I think it's really interesting to hear what perplexes people to learn about the various experiences that they have that they can't explain. And so when I have these conversations, I think about it and I say, okay, I I believe you. I believe that you saw something that you can't explain. But how do we get from that to saying it's aliens? How do those dots connect when there's so many other possible explanations for what might be going on and aliens is the one that consistently comes up and it's the one that consistently provokes very strong reactions. It's to me, and I got in a lot of trouble for saying this publicly, to me it's as much a cultural phenomenon as it is anything else. I agree with Nadia that it is a cultural phenomenon, and we'll hear more about that later in the show. But I want to point out the argument I hear as often as the argument from authority when it comes to UFO claims. It's a logical fallacy called argument from ignorance. That is, something is true because it hasn't yet been proven false or it's false because it hasn't yet been proven true. So the idea is that because we don't know what these objects are, well, they must be alien craft. I hear from members of the public all the time, so Shostak proved that it's not aliens. I mean, these people believe incorrectly that the absence of evidence is somehow proof that we're going to assume it's aliens unless someone can provide proof it's not aliens. Aliens exist in what I call the low information zone which is uh, is, is just the, 
the situation or the circumstances which are just a little bit beyond what you can actually resolve uh, something interesting out of them, which often is simply them being too far away for whichever camera you have, or perhaps just being out of focus and very close, or you can see them close up, but it's too dark to take a photograph, or perhaps they are uh, kind of ambiguous in, as to whether they are very small objects or very far away objects because you, you lack the contextual information. We never get things that venture just onto this side of the low information zone so they can be identified, which of course really points very strongly to the absence of them actually existing. And as the saying, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, but you know, eventually it kind of is. If there were these things all over the world, you would expect to have some evidence of them being here. And the absence of that evidence, I think, does strongly indicate evidence of absence. What do you make of the lack of corroborating evidence that you would expect for these things, right? I mean, our satellites can image the entire Earth every day. There's a whole, you know, there are almost a thousand of them, and they're not all mm -hmm. the U.S. military's satellites. I mean, the other countries have these things, and they don't see these craft and you can say oh well the you know the the americans are keeping it mum well okay if you want to believe that but is every country keeping it mum or are these incapable of seeing alien craft if there are any yeah i think that's a great point now satellites uh, perhaps they're not covering every single square inch of the of the planet in sufficiently high resolution but something that is is air traffic control radar Pretty much every square foot of the United States is covered in, in, in three dimensions in, in many cases with uh, flight control radar, which tracks the positions of all these planes. Now, if you ever go into a, an air traffic control tower, you will see the, the radar screens and they show all the planes on. Now, that's actually filtered data. The computer takes the raw radar data and it filters out things like, uh, like birds and balloons that aren't important and just leaves the, the planes. And if you look at the raw data for that radar, you will see everything. Uh, that data is recorded. So we actually have recordings of the raw radar data covering the entire United States going back years. And no UFOs have shown up in it. So I think that's very, very telling that we don't see UFOs showing up in these large data sets that do cover large amounts uh, of the country and indeed the world. So in summary, what we've been hearing in this interview and on Capitol Hill, and frankly in many outlets that are discussing UFO claims, are a number of logical fallacies that can be quite misleading, but are being used to support explosive claims about alien visitation. There's the argument from authority that credentialed people are telling the truth and that highly skilled people like pilots don't make errors. And there's the argument from ignorance that if you can't prove it's not aliens, then it is aliens. But the bottom line in all of this is that whatever the claim is, and especially when it is an extraordinary claim, and this gets trotted out often, but it is true, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. We need evidence that alien visitation is real. Yeah, absolutely. That's just the nature of science. You can, you can say what you want about the behavior of magnetic fields or anything else in science, but if you don't have any evidence, if you don't have an experiment that gives you a result, then you're just, you know, Blowing smoke. Look, this story of government cover-up about UFOs, it's not new. Variations of it have played out for 80-some years and always with the same result. No evidence, but amplified suspicion about the government. And as Ezra Klein rightly points out, the Pentagon is not great at keeping secrets. Well, Seth, now let's 
turn to you and what SETI scientists have to say about the existence of aliens. And then I'd also like to talk more about these conspiracy theories and and what it means if we accept them. But often you get criticized because you're someone who's looking for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. So why is it that you don't believe that the aliens are here? So let's just start with the scientific case for aliens elsewhere in the universe. Why do scientists think that there could be life elsewhere? I think it's basically because the Earth and the solar system that we're in is not all that special, right? Out of uh, every uh, 10 stars that are somewhat like the sun, and that's 10% of all stars, uh, you know, three or four of them have planets. And a planet, actually, that's roughly the same size as the Earth, the same average temperature. So our situation, astronomically speaking, doesn't seem to be all that special. So it would really be remarkable if you say, okay, well, that, you know, Earth is not all that special, but life is special or intelligence is special. You should always be suspicious when you're trying to prove that you're special. But that could be the case for microbes, for alien microbes. Why do you believe that intelligent life could be out there? Well, I mean, that's actually a good point because, yeah, microbes are a lot easier to get started than intelligence. On the other hand, you know, microbes were on the Earth and they were the only form of life, really, for 4 billion years. And then in the last 500 million or 300 million or whatever, suddenly we start getting more sophisticated life. It's, it seems to be a natural product of evolution. We don't know because we only have one example. That's the problem here. Given that scientists make the case that there's intelligent life out there somewhere, um, why doesn't it just follow that we'd be visited by that alien life? And this is, brings us to the totality of these conspiracy theories. If we were to accept them, what are we being asked to accept? I mean, think of what's required for us to host some alien visitors. More than an hors d'oeuvre plate and drinks? Well, that might be enough for some of them. But look, they, first they have to know we're here, right? Otherwise, why visit a dead planet? So they, they need to know that there's life on Earth. And, you know, that's worth the money they're going to spend to get here. Because it isn't like in Star Trek where you put the pedal to the metal and you just rocket off to some other star system. It's very hard to go fast enough to get to another star system before you're dead. So is it a technology problem? problem or a physics problem? No, it's mostly a technology problem as far as that goes, right? It doesn't violate physics to go visit the Klingons, right? There's no physical law that's being violated there, but it is very, very hard to do. So if you're assuming that the aliens have come here, if you believe that, then you have to first believe that they know we're here and consequently have a reason to spend the money. And secondly, that they've spent the money and actually are here. And third, that they've done it just in time for you to hear about it on the nightly news, that they didn't do it 100,000 years ago or 100,000 years from now. If we were to accept that even a fraction of all these sightings were actual alien craft, how often would aliens be visiting us and what would that say about uh, the chances that we might see one of them? Yeah, well, I looked up on the web, you know, uh, how many sightings have been reported. These are not the number of sightings that occur, these are the number of sightings that not only occurred, but somebody took the trouble to report them. And it was 8,000, you know, per year in the United States. 8,000. Okay, so that means there are like 20 aliens being seen every day here in the United States. That's a lot of alien pleasure. And you would think that they would be, you know, taking all the better parking spaces or something, that there would be some other, other aspect of their presence here that we would notice. The other thing that does strike me is that usually in these reports, the aliens have come all this distance, right, to visit us in the last 100 or 200 feet. They make a navigation error and crash into the dirt. I mean, those guys should have their pilot's license 
you know, withdrawn. The other thing is, if they're really coming here and crashing all the time, I mean, you can take the word of Grush because he says, look, the government has teams of people who go out and retrieve this crash debris. So they must be retrieving this crash debris. I mean, it's a full-time job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And not for just, you know, a small team. You need several teams, I'm sure. It would make a a great story for your relatives to tell them, yeah, well, the business I'm in, Bob, is I retrieve crash debris of aliens. And the other thing is, we are talking here about America exclusively because that's where we are. But presumably the aliens don't really feel that strongly that they can only visit America. They might be visiting Europe or maybe they like the food in Italy. I mean, who knows? And yet this is especially an American problem because, you know, I've lived in Europe and they didn't talk much about this sort of thing. So if you figure they're not just here to visit the Americans, us, but that, you know, it's being covered up all around the world. This is a a worldwide conspiracy to hide the biggest science story of the century. So of the last few centuries, maybe longer than that. Well, as we continue our investigation of UFO conspiracies, we want to thank Ben Radford, James McGahey, Nadia Drake, and Mick West for their contributions to the episode so far. And a special thanks to Ezra Klein, whose podcast, What the Heck is Going On with These UFO Stories, helped kick off this episode. Coming up, speculation as to why Congress held the hearings and what's next and why belief in UFOs is rather unlikely to go away. This episode of our look at critical thinking is Skeptic Check, UFO Conspiracy. In our final thoughts about the recent UFO claims and how we examine them, we might ask, why did the House Oversight Subcommittee hold the hearings in the first place? Well, for one, there is enormous public interest in this subject, but what else is going on? It's possible that representatives are indulging their own beliefs in UFOs or, as I've found, are naive about the science surrounding the claims. But the simplest reason is the most logical. Things spotted flying in our airspace are a national security issue. The military has an interest in destigmatizing the reporting of UAPs in case they are drones or foreign technology of some other sort. And it is true that we don't know what many of the UAPs are, but the Pentagon and NASA are working on that. Because one of the upsides in all of this, in part due to Leslie Kane's reporting, is that there has been a surge of interest in a careful scientific study of the phenomena in our skies. We have the Pentagon's UAP task force started in 2020, and since then, NASA has convened their own panel. So we may be in a new phase for the study of UAPs. But here's another reason from Nadia Drake about why the subject gets so much attention. But I think what this all kind of speaks to, and this is the positive part, is that people are really interested in whether we are alone in the universe. That question is so compelling, and the answer is going to be so profound that it gets a lot of people really excited, including me. I really want to know the answer to that question, too, and I know you do. We just look at different sources of information to find that answer. 
So what's next for the NASA panel? Are you going to be meeting again, uh, you know, in the fall? Um, So we are putting together a report that will address the statements of task, and that will be submitted to NASA at some point this summer, and then it will be made public. And yet, no matter what happens, what kind of information is turned up or how many Pentagon and NASA groups investigate UAPs, the belief in a UFO conspiracy is unlikely to go away. That from Benjamin Radford, who has written extensively about this psychological phenomenon. It's remarkable to look at the psychology of the UFO believer and see the rationalizations as to why they don't have good evidence, particularly with with UFO claims. I mean, these are literally things that are unidentified flying in the air. There are things that all of us could potentially see. You know, in some cases, you're talking about, you know, telescopes and space probes. But for the most part, UFOs are or at least should be, in the public domain. They're crashing, allegedly. <laughs> they're, they're being bodies found, allegedly. So this is not something that only scientists and astronomers should be able to find and see. <laughs> These are things that, that presumably should be accessible to pretty much anyone. But of course, that's when you get into the men in black and the cover-up and the conspiracies and you know people being threatened not to talk, and you just go down the rabbit hole. You make the point that just because the government spent $22 million on this project doesn't mean that they found anything. Uh, you draw parallels to Project Stargate, which I think ran from the mid-1970s to the 1990s before it was shut down. What did Stargate investigate, and did it find anything? One of the most amusing parts of this whole story is the notion that I often hear that, well, there must be something to it because the DOD spent, you know, $22 million on it. (laughs) I'm like, have you seen our government? Do you... Do you read the news? I mean, the fact is that the government spends enormous amounts of money on projects that go absolutely nowhere and have no chance of being successful. You can look at the Star Wars program that was initiated during the Reagan era. You can look at abstinence-only sex education. There's 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 a laundry list of, of programs and projects you know, that millions of taxpayer dollars were spent on that had no chance of success and, and yielded nothing at all. And there's also uh, Project Stargate, which was initiated during the the Cold War era to uh, determine whether or not there were psychic spies being used by the Russians. And there was a real concern among some people in the government at the time that there were psychic spies that were maybe compromising national security. Well, wait, 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 wait. when you say psychic spies, you mean people who can sort of remote view, they can see, I don't know, classified documents from thousands of miles away by just putting their fingers to their forehead and closing their eyes? Well, it sounds silly when you put it that way, but yeah, that's exactly what the thought was. You know, the, the, the psychic spies were sort of thought to be these what are called remote viewers, where people would be able to envision from across the world uh, classified secrets or, or the design of weapons and things like that. So the program lasted from the 1970s through the mid-1990s, and eventually it was discontinued. Uh, what happened was that it was handed over to the CIA, and several people, including a colleague of mine, Ray Hyman, was asked to analyze the data they had collected. And after looking at it, they realized there was no evidence whatsoever that psychic power existed or remote viewers could do what they claimed to do. All right. Well, it was a good use of tax dollars. At the risk, <laughs> Ben, at the risk of uh, beating an expired equine here, let me just say, it strikes me that if all these reports of UFOs were, or at least some of them, were indeed alien craft, and given that there are dozens of reports every day, I mean, I hear from one or two people every day myself, just me, we're talking about a lot of spaceships cruising the skies. 
uh, that would be, I would think, a hazard to commercial aviation, just avoiding these guys, and that sooner or later we'd have a high-resolution photograph or even some solid piece of hardware, a landing gear or something on the ground, that would constitute evidence. Well, you know, the contradiction in UFO research is that UFOs are apparently both everywhere and nowhere. There's tens of thousands of UFO photographs, uh, alleged UFO photographs, and more each week, <laughs> as you and I both know, because people send them to us. And yet, and yet, where's the evidence? If there was actually hard evidence that aliens are visiting us, it should be crystal clear. Even if you concede that maybe a few of them were scuttled away by you know, government agents or something, there's just too many sightings and reports, if these things are, are real, to credibly conclude that there would be no evidence for them whatsoever. You know, I notice that this subject is very emotional. If I express an opinion that I'm a little doubtful that the evidence is any good for visitation, I'm immediately subject to ad hominem attack. It's not a discussion. It's an argument. What, what's the psychology of that? What's going on here? It's interesting that that's exactly right, because what happens is that there's this binary polarized idea in UFO research, particularly, and it applies to other areas of the paranormal as well, but certainly UFOs. There's this notion that if you're a skeptic, if you're a scientist, or astronomer, and you disagree with the idea that aliens are visiting us and have crashed and all this sort of thing, that you are either one of two things. You're either what's called a sheeple or too stupid to really know what's going on and you're just buying into the story by big government, or you're part of the conspiracy. And that's a very damaging mindset. And in that context, it's not surprising that discussions about UFOs are not productive. You know, this idea of conspiracy theories, uh, on the one hand, you could say it seems illogical, but obviously it's not illogical because... Uh, conspiracy theories are very popular, they're very widespread, and they're very durable. What's going on? They are very widespread. Uh, In fact, uh, there's been really interesting research coming out over the past decade or so about the psychology of the conspiracy theorist. And what you find is that conspiracy theories really cross all boundaries, you know, socioeconomic, gender, uh, liberals, Democrats, Republicans, they all have their own versions of it. And so it's, it's easy to sort of cast aspersions and say, well, well, they think that crazy thing, but we have the truth. Like, no, 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 no. We all have our, our pet conspiracies uh, that we, we subscribe to to some degree or another. There's a couple reasons for that. One of them is that conspiracy theories serve as, as a group identity. You can tell a lot by a person by looking at what exactly they they believe. And oftentimes people will endorse conspiracies, not because they necessarily completely agree with the literal truth of it, but because it it promotes a worldview that they subscribe to. You know, in psychology, it's called confirmation bias, right? So we see we see a, a particular data set of information, and we pick and choose what parts we pay attention to. And oftentimes, it, it's unconscious. We don't we're not even aware of it. And and similarly, we will tend to dismiss or ignore or not even pay attention to evidence and facts that don't support what we believe. Ben, you know, the people who advocate the, the idea of UFOs sailing the skies have been saying for years that there is secret information stacked up by the government somewhere that would prove that, uh, you know, this is actually happening. Is this ever going to go away, or are the conspiracy theorists going to be saying forever that, you know, there's hidden information? I mean, when does this end? 
It's never going to end because inherent in conspiracy belief, and particularly regarding UFOs and aliens, there's always more information they believe they're not getting. The nature of conspiracy belief is that there's always more out there that is inaccessible. And no matter how much information, no matter how many facts, no, no matter what's out there, they're not going to accept it. They will always be convinced that whatever is out there is only the tip of the iceberg or part of a disinformation campaign, and they're going to keep believing. Ben Radford, thanks so very much for speaking with us. Thanks for having me on, Seth. Always great to talk to you. Benjamin Radford is a research fellow with the Committee for Skeptical Inquiry. Well, Seth, it has been fun to travel down this UFO road or maybe travel through these UFO skies once again with you. And I look forward to the next time, although I hope then the reason that we're talking about them is that the story has significantly changed. Yeah, you know, Molly, I would really look forward, and I do look forward, to seeing some physical evidence. That would be very exciting indeed. I mean, to have, you know, proof that you could put on your desk that shows that, you know, the aliens are really out there. So if someone does have evidence of alien technology, should they bring it to you? They could send it to Big Picture Science at the SETI <laughs> oh, Institute. Gosh. And I'm sure that the Institute will first, you know, uh, make sure there's nothing alive inside. This show would not be possible without the undeniable talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Shannon Rose Geary and Brian Edwards. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show was by Dewey DeLay and June Miyaki. This Skeptic Check episode of Big Picture Science that examines how we consider extraordinary claims and the evidence they require is called Skeptic Check UFO Conspiracy. And on UFOs, I would just say, uh, no one would be happier than me if we were being visited, and it would save me so much trouble. But uh, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, and I would say the evidence that we are now or ever have been visited, despite the claims of being abducted and God knows what happens on the spaceship, the, those claims are crummy. The evidence just isn't good, and nothing that would convince a skeptic. Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimberger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimberger.org.